I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is the podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. With the fate of hundreds of thousands of young undocumented immigrants in the balance, the Senate has begun an open-ended debate on immigration, an exceedingly rare step that, in effect, will allow senators to build a bill from scratch on the Senate floor. President Donald Trump's election on the wave of anti-immigrant fervor has made the current negotiations even more difficult, and with provocative statements by Mr. Trump claiming that immigrants are from shithole countries, bring drugs and crime to this country, and rape women, it's no wonder immigrants are being viewed with negative sentiment. I have a hard time accepting President Trump's position on immigration and uncharacteristically disagree with all the assertions that he has made. But one thing I do agree with him on is when he said, quote, and some, I assume, are good people, end quote. Ali Jang is undeniably one of those quote-unquote good people, a true example of one of the many millions of immigrants who, like me, have immigrated to the United States, not only to improve their own lives, but also to benefit this country. In the process, we have become engineers, caregivers, entrepreneurs, teachers, scientists, artists, and politicians. Born in Mauritania, a country in the northwest of Africa, within 10 years of his arrival to the United States, Ali Jang has already become a city councillor in Burlington, Vermont's largest city. Ali is the only non-white member of the city council and only the third person of color to have served in this council and the second immigrant American to serve in the city's legislative body. Ali, as an immigrant myself, it is with great pride that I welcome you to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. Uh, so, Ali, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, your upbringing, and what childhood influences led you to who you are today? Definitely. First of all, I think I can start with my dad a little bit. He was a very educated person. Uh, when he was uh, in college in Mauritania, he received um, the privilege of one of the few Mauritanians to go to Russia. Um, and he studied there. He studied engineering, agricultural engineering. So when he big, when he come back to Africa, he decided to work in Senegal. And then, you know, he was a director of um, Sodeva. So it's a French connotation, basically looking into agricultural, uh, you know, processes with farmers. Yeah. Uh, when I was born and growing up, we had it all in my family. Uh, I'm part of a very well-known and respected family, uh, educated family. 
we had it all. We were one of the only families that had TV. My dad had the car. Uh, we used to go out with my friends. We were very privileged. But in one point uh, in, during my life, you know, when I was around eight, nine, everything has changed. And it's when my mom passed away after uh, battling a long, long years of illness. And I am the oldest in my family. I have four sisters and a young brother. And, you know, when my mom passed, my brothers and sisters were taken away by my extended family, so my aunts and uncle, to raise them. Um, you know, and my dad immigrated to France in 1993. So it's when I, I leave elementary school to go to middle school. And as of today, I have never seen my dad since then, since 1993. Um, so the way that I see my life um, turning around, it's because of a person that I met in 1996. His name is El-Haji Muhammadu Mustafa Gom. Um, when I known him, he already passed, but I met his family. I, he was a spiritual guide who really helped me with his teaching to find purpose in life, to see what is important, such as family, such as community, such as giving back. And because of his teaching, um, that's how I started to get involved. One of the privileges also, I attended a Catholic elementary school during my first four years of school. So basically, it was very private. Uh, my textbooks were different. Um, I attended uh, preschool, you know, you know, all of that private. And I, at an early age, I used to interact with people from different backgrounds, Arabic people who are businessmen white people, uh, French, um, from French, you know, I used at an early age to interact with all of those different races and um, backgrounds and ethnicities at an early age. Um, I'm just curious as to, it, it sounds like that life that you had prior to your mother's passing really sort of prepared you for maybe a life here overseas and that it uh, allowed you to interact with people that were not necessarily from the same culture as you, maybe not necessarily mm -hmm. from, maybe from different uh, classes and so on. So was that good preparation for the life that you have? Yes, yes. I mean, definitely. And I think, you know, it is really uh, important to uh, for, for people, I mean, human beings in general, to be exposed to differences because that makes you just stronger and makes you more aware and makes you more um, passionate about the differences. I mean, only if you open your heart and if you open your mind and be able to try to know and learn what you did not know. Um, yeah, so that, and I think what really prepared me to uh, be an agent of change or trying to bring change is when I lost that privilege in my life, when things started from becoming sweet and becoming sour, that's when I, my learning experience has opened. You know, uh, because when you have everything with you, when you are privileged, you don't pay attention to what you don't have. You know, you are uh, living in a world that's very, um, you know, privileged. Anything that you want, you can get, but it won't have any meaning until you try to get it by yourself. For example, my dad, what he did in his childhood, what he accomplished, that for him, 
I mean, if I stayed privileged, I would not understand the world, you know. And I think that shift from becoming privileged to vulnerable, that's what opened my eyes. And that's what pushed me to get involved. That's what um, helped me um, to understand the differences and also to embrace them, you know, and to be part of a greater community and to just see also the world as not um, stopping with me and my thinking. There are so much out there that we need to explore that we haven't known yet. When I was in high school, for example, that's when I started to really to, to create things. For example, at my high school, I created an English club. You know, we were a French colonized country. We speak Arabic. You can take your courses in Arabic or in French. Uh, but English was something that I was passionate about and uh, that I was trying to, to learn just by myself because in, in, in high school, you have basically two hours of, 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 of a foreign language. Two hours of English was not enough. But I teach myself, I tried. So I went in every single classroom in my high school in Grosor and talked to the teachers and talked to the students, asked them that we have this idea of creating an English club. And we know that in our home, um, there are what they call them the Peace Corps volunteers, you know, and with the Peace Corps volunteers, we will be able to learn more English. That was my initiative. Um, and then from there, um, from there, I started to develop some leadership skills at uh, high school. Um, and then from there, I was part of the movement of African, youth African workers. So that's an African movement with the objective to defend the rights of children in accordance to the United Nations Convention on the Right of the Children, as well as African Charter of the Right of Welfare of the Children. So we were working entirely to fight and prevent against the worst form of labor of children and youth. How old were you at that point? I was like in my high school. I was during 17, 18. Yep. And I became the secretary general uh, from 2000 to 2003 when I went to college. That's when I stopped working uh, with that organization. So we traveled around Africa. We met all the Africans um, doing the, with the same uh, purpose is the same mission. We get together through kind of conferences and we were under the wing of Enda Third World, you know, that helps um, communities to get out of poverty. And through that, I also uh, met and worked wonderfully with the Peace Corps volunteers uh, in Rosso. Uh, together, we worked and, you know, provide activities to fight um, AIDS, to fight glaucoma, um, and up to, to bring up activities that can generate some revenue for our own association. That's a very fascinating um, life you were living. As a young man, uh, before you really knew what your life calling was, you sort of were already starting to live it. And then obviously through your interaction with the Peace Corps, you met uh, your now wife. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about how you met? Yes. Um, she was um English teacher at the middle school in Rosso. I was in high school, so basically two different buildings, but very close to each other. And she was living alone a couple blocks from my home um, in Rosso. 
And just one day, I was with my cousins uh, outside. We were making tea. You know, it was a really hot day. We were under a tree. And there was a group of four uh, white women, you know, walking and also a man. And my now wife was in the middle. But, you know, they just passed us. They said hi. You know, we said hi. And then when she passed, when they all passed, she was in the middle walking. But there was something about her. She was different, you know, with the other uh, American woman and man that she was with. She was just different. I told my cousin, you know, this woman in between, you know, with a blue shirt, you know, I, I, I think that I will marry her. I didn't even know her name. Really? I didn't know <laughs> nothing about her. But I just had that feeling that there is something about her that's different. Had you ever like seen her before? I, was looking for. I mean, I see them around. Maybe I've seen her face to face. I see, but to me, all white people, they looked like back then. <laughs> you know, their hairs were a little bit different. Like they used to say also, Africans, you all look like. But it's just when you interact with them, you start to make the distinction who's who. Uh, by their names, by their right. skin color, by their hairs and all of that. But I knew that there would be something between me and her. I did not even know her name. So after that, you know, when I saw her, let's say for the first time, you know, one day, uh, it was around noon, uh, I was walking from school and she was behind me. I did not know until I went into inside a shop, you know, to get some bread or tea or something. And then she passed. When she passed, I ran behind her and said, hey, hi. And she stopped. And we were talking, you know, in English. I introduced myself in English and tell her who I am, what I do, and where I live. Um, and she was impressed. She was impressed by my English. We walked until my house. And then we said goodbye. You know, now I know her name. And now she knows my name. And, you know, I asked her that I would like to perform my English, uh, but I am able also to teach you any other language. For example, French, Wolof, Pular, Hassania, those are languages that I speak uh, from Mauritania and Senegal. Um, yeah, we shaked hand and she left, you know. And a couple of days after one night, I uh, was going to a friend's house. It was dark and she walked past me. I asked her to stop. She put the light on my face to just make sure that it's me. Um, and then, you know, I said, I'm going to my friend's house. Do you would like you to come? You know, she thought about it for a moment and said, yeah, let's go. You know, we became friends for a very, very long time. She was giving me some books uh, in English, you know, children's book, basically. And I was teaching her a little bit of Wolof and French. And that was like 2000 to 2001. You know, when 9-11 came, um, the Peace Corps asked them, you know, to move because Mauritania was 100% Muslim and we had Arabic people, we had black people. So for their safety, they were asked to go back home. Yeah. You know, some shoes to stay uh, with no protection, but she was one of the uh, few that decided to go back because she wanted to work on her master's degree here at Middlebury College. So she came back, you know, we kept in touch, uh, you know, until 2005. That's when she decided to come back in uh, Mauritania so, uh, so that we can get married. You guys kept in touch for the best part of four years. Four years. While she was here in the U.S. Yeah. and you were in Mauritania. 
in Mauritania. Yep. Wow. And, you know, in one point, sometimes we just kind of lost track because, you know, mails get lost uh, or, you know, emails, you know, or I don't have access to an email or a computer, you know, but we've been talking um, regularly. Did and your family approve of all of this? I mean, she's a white woman. She probably was not Muslim, I'm assuming. And she was yeah. from America. Uh, was this not a recipe for disaster for, for your relationship? Yes. So basically, you know, my family, for example, the head of the family, my dad is no longer there. My mom passed, my grandfather passed. So my uncle was someone that I needed to report to. He was my guardian, basically. Um, so when I, when my now wife came to visit in um, 2005, you know, I brought her to all my family in Senegal, in Mauritania, my aunt's uncle, every single house I to introduce to them. But my dad could not perform the ritual of the uh, wedding. But I had to talk to my uncle but to get his approval. But he said definitely no. You are not going to marry a white woman that we don't know. I said maybe uncle, you don't know her. But in Rosso, everywhere in Africa, in our family, they know who, who she is. But my uncle was like, this culturally, you are going to get lost when you marry uh, someone who's not our culture. Um, you know, it took me a lot of lobbying and talked to my uncle's friends, talked to my aunts. Every single person was supportive. But if he doesn't give us a green light, no one will want to perform the ritual of the wedding because he was the headmaster of the family you know so Same. it took me time at least two weeks to try to lobby other people to talk to him um and you know in one 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 day my wife had to come back to the united states because of the visa and he was going to start work here so my uncle decided called us and said you know i'm going to tell you that yes you guys can get married but still I am not the one who will perform the ritual, uh, which we all took that this is a great, wonderful, uh, positive step, uh, step forward. Uh, we took it when we did our marriage in October 6, um, 2005, and we had a big ceremony back home. Um, and, you know, back then I was in college, so I stayed in college. My wife came back, and it's in 2007 that I came in the United States in Washington, D.C. Wow, that's a that's a very fascinating story and uh, a great love story too. Maybe we'll make a movie of it at some point, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, what what was it like uh, when you moved to the United States? Uh, assuming you, I'm assuming you had never been to the U.S. before up until the point when you moved in 2007. You said January 12. 2007. That's when I landed in Washington, D.C. Um, and then, you know, my wife picked me up at the airport. We lived in Washington, D.C. for 22 months. And during those 22 months, it was very challenging um, at the same time, because even though I was speaking a little bit of English, but I found it to be very fast when English American people speak English very, very, very fast. <laughs> and also the, yeah, and I, the first three months, basically, I, it was in January, I just stayed home. 
Um, I did not have papers to work. I stayed home, you know, watch TV and, you know, try to perform my English. You know, I attended, um, you know, a charter school uh, in D.C. called Carlos Rosario. That's when I learned more English, you know, and perform my um, technical, let's say, computer skills from sending an email to, um, you know, learning about PowerPoint, you know, all of those uh, media outlets. That's, mm-hmm. that's when I learned it, um, you know. And then when I started to get uh, the work authorization, I worked as a uh, baker at a restaurant in D.C. called Cozy, um, and then worked at Johnny Rockets as a you know server where we serve you know basically just food and dance and things like that mm-hmm. uh, we felt very very lonely um you know that that i can say it, it was tough it was hard because i did not meet anybody from uh senegal or mauritania you know i had a card that i can take the metro and go around the city i get out i never get lost I go to malls, you know, that was basically my life in DC. I'm a drummer. I wanted to really play some drums with, you know, get involved, but I could not. You know, there was a lot of Spanish people that I worked with, African-American, you know, and it helped me to get, understand those people also and their stories. You know, how did you get to the United States? Uh, What is it like for you? You know, those type of things and really helped me. And then, started to meet people from Africa, you know, that speak uh, the languages that I uh, speak. Um, And some of them still live there, um, but very felt isolated in the beginning. Had you ever dreamed about uh, relocating to the United States at any point in your life? No, I mean, I was thinking to go to France, you know, after I graduated from uh, high school. You know, I even received an invitation to apply for a, a, a college in Saint-Étienne in, in France. They gave me an invitation to come study there, but I did not get the visa. I never thought in my life that I would come to the United States. You know, I have beautiful pictures of my dad, you know, in D.C. You know, he used to come here for conferences. He, you know, he came to the U.S. at least three times you know, during his lifetime before. But me, it never crossed my mind, you know. And I always thought that, you know, United States is all about big, 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 huge buildings. It's about, you know, becoming a star, you know. Um, You will see uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you will see Silver Stallone, you know, all of those uh, great people that I know through movies, you know, I thought that I would meet them here. Um, but when I came, it was totally different, and I was struck by the beauty of the United States, by you know the great infrastructures, and by how clean the roads and bridges, and you know homes. Uh, but at the same time, I also found you know homelessness. I found you know people with mental health. I found people you know um, safety who are experiencing. Uh, you know, drugs, you know, all of that. Mm. To me, this did not exist in the U.S. In D.C., it was very obvious. Yeah, it's it's always funny when I think of how um, the way I viewed the United States was similar to yours, where you always think of the Hollywood glamorous lifestyle. 
And yet you never really think about the fact that, yeah, there are people that are struggling. There are people that are homeless and people that are bankrupt and people that need yeah. uh, social services. And there are rich people here just as they are rich people in Africa, but there's also poor people uh, here just as they are poor people uh, in Africa. Yeah, you know, and I am sure also, you know, what what you start of the United States and what you experience, you know, people who are in Africa or who don't live here will never understand or they might even think that you are not being honest with them. You know, they will think that here the money, you know, you can get it anytime, <laughs> anywhere. They don't know how rent is expensive, how loans work. They they, they, they don't know. They yeah, think that exactly. you're here, you're a rich person, you know, this happens, which I think is not uh, very accurate. Yes. Right, right. How did you then transition to living in Vermont? Yes. Um, so, you know, when I got here in January 2007, so, uh, so, let's say February 2008, that when our first child was born, you know, she was born in DC, basically one year after I arrived. Um, and, you know, when she was born, I was still going to school to learn English and all of that. I was working at night, it was tough for me. You know, I have a father staying home in the morning and a worker at night. My wife was working, you know, during the day until four or five, and then we'll try this young. Um, so basically, we needed a little bit of um, help, basically, to raise our children. And also, we knew that in Washington, in, uh, Washington D.C., there was not the quality of life was not that excellent. You know, it was very noisy. We were living in an apartment. We had, you know, it was not a very great environment to raise um, children. But my wife, you know, she went to Middlebury College here in the in Vermont. She also went to SIT for her master's degree. So she knew Vermont and she's from upstate New York, two hours away from Burlington, you know, Chateaugay Lake. Um, she wanted to get closer to her family um, in order for us to get her help. And also when our child is grown up enough, she'll be able to access great, wonderful schools. And this is a safe community to raise children and all of that. So those are the reasons why we decided to come here. But here is one thing. When I got here in August 2008, I mean, to tell you the truth, I did not like Burlington. You know, it was just so different. Uh, it was beautiful, the landscape, the, the nature, but still it felt as, uh, rural, very rural to me compared to uh, Mauritania, you know, where I come from, compared to Washington, D.C., where I landed. When I came here, it was totally different. You know, I see the electrical pools mm. hanging around, which does not exist even in Africa anymore. You know, it was not that modern. But, you know, with the time, I started to now learn something else that I never thought of, which is the environment. And also because this is all about caring for the environment from recycling, which I never thought of that I'll do in my life, <laughs> you know, composting, you know, all of those, I never thought of that in my life. Even appreciating just the sun coming up, 
and also seeing the sun go down. You have all of those in Africa, all of those, but never paid attention to that. The beauty of the nature, never paid attention to mm. that until here, because the people here, that's what it is about. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know all of this. And I also see that, you know, climate change is, is real. And also how Vermonters, uh, you know, are working proactively to bring solutions, to look at their um, interaction with the environment at large and also to appreciate it and preserve it for the next generation. You know, and when I started to understand all of that, I'm like, wow, that's it. And I think um, going also to the schools, working as uh, in the elementary schools, as after school counselor, you know, to teach drumming, um, raise awareness of West African culture. I saw this as an opportunity to really share my culture with the greater Wellington community and also to get to know children and families and the way of life of you know America in general through Vermont children. Um, so yeah, and with the time I learned to appreciate all of that and also to care uh, how do we make sure we preserve it for the next generation. And now, even if you pay me to leave, go back to DC, just leave there, I'll say no. <laughs> This, yeah, this is the best um, town and city um, to me in the whole entire world. And I'm telling you this because I traveled too. I went to so many different conferences in the south, in the north, the east, everywhere. But still, I want to come back. I want to come back and breathe the fresh air that's here. And also, people are really community-driven. I think that's what we have in common with Africans, you know. They smile at you even if you don't know their names. They can open their door to you because you're black, you, you, you're different, you have an accent. But Vermonters are really coming and they just appreciate every single person regardless of their income or religion. We kind of have started talking a little bit about it, but uh, life in Vermont, uh, your life in Burlington, um, you had a law degree from university in Mauritania, and we know that law and politics are like salt and pepper, you know, they go well together. Um, were you always destined to get into politics? No, and, you know, even, for example, going to the University of Mauritania, I didn't have a choice. Basically, what I wanted to study is socialism. I was really good at uh, philosophy when I was in, in, in high school. You know, and also French uh, literature. You, you are graduated as a person of of words, of of letters. You know, reading, writing, thinking. That was my thing. And to me, I thought that in my life I will become a sociologue, someone who think about the science of sociology of the people, their environment, etc. But I did not have that choice in Mauritania. You know, I had to go to another university so i tried to go to france it did not work but i choose you know between literature or uh, law so i decided to do law you know and you know i yeah i attended the university of mauritania and it's during my fourth years when i received the visa that's when i left mauritania to come here in the united states what motivated yeah. you to run for the Burlington Ward 7 race then? Yes, yeah, so what motivated me basically is a lot of different things. And I think 
my involvement in this community was just preparing me to to take action to run someday for something so before even i thought of running i was thinking of how can i be part of this community that was my fundamental aspiration how can i be part uh, when i become americorps member uh, in 2008 2009 here um, I got involved in the community. I learned so much how um, the system works from um, federal government to state government to local uh, municipalities. When I understood that, then I gained a lot of trainings, you know, around cultural competency, around collaborating with other people, around speaking in public and all of that. And then from there, I started to look for opportunities to to serve, you know, in board members and things like that. So I started as a board member at CVOO, you know, uh, Champlain Valley Office of Economic Services to represent Chittenden County. Um, I also volunteered as a board member at Rights for Democracy, working around the political atmosphere uh, in Vermont and New Hampshire. And from there, I started to attend trainings about if you're interested in running for office, what is needed, and what is your platform, you know, but never thought of city council. I knew that I would run for something sometime, someday, but never knew what and when. And the people used to push me so much until, you know, in the spring when I heard that there was a, a city council position open for Ward 7 special election, that's when I, you know, announced. Um, and when I announced, I mean, I was amazed by the amount of feedback that I received that are actually very positive from Vermonters, you know, all over the place, all over. You know, when I set up a campaign account, people started to just donate. People started to like it. There was some articles through seven days, free press. I'm like, wow, this is becoming something now real, very real. And I run because I knew that there were not many people in this community are left out when we talk about politics. And we know that over 36% of the students in Burlington are not students of white students. They are students of color, right? We know that since 1981, Vermont has become a refugee resettlement state, you know? We know also the contribution of all those refugees and immigrants in um, the, the economy, in also the safety and well-being of, you know, let's say elders of the hospital. So we bring so many stuff, but still we are not at the table to make a decision for the future of the town and city state that we live in. So I know that, you know, there are a couple of things that I would be able to impact. And one of them was to bring up more, uh, to bring different representation, different perspective, different ideas at the council to represent the diversity that we live in here. Um, and to improve the communication between my constituents and also the city of Burlington, which I did not even know who was my city councillor because I never received any feedback or I did mm. not. But I also felt that so many people have been left out and I wanted to change that. Was it scary to run? No, I mean, basically, I think AmeriCorps and all the training that I went through, 
I mean, I, I am also a person who is really open. I come to a room, for example, in a gym, I want to shake everybody's hand. I want to know who they are. And I think Vermont is like that. They, when you make them feel comfortable, when they see that you've um, been contributing to the greatness of the city, people love that. And I think that helps me win a successful, great, wonderful campaign of over 62% of the votes. You had never been a politician before. Um, were you surprised by the process? Yes. I mean, I was a little bit surprised about, you know, how, how it will just work. It was a lot of work because everything here in the United States is regulated. There are rules and regulations in anything. Even if you want to change a window at your home, you have to get a permit. I mean, you know, those type of things. To me, you just put your name forward, but no, you have to get 30 valid signatures. You have to register at the Vermont Secretary, um, uh, Vermont House Secretary. You have to register. You have to raise money. You have to have a platform. There are so many steps when you want to run a campaign, which I had no idea. No, no idea. But I knew this is possible, and I also knew that there are a couple of people um, that I can count on to help me during this journey. And those people showed up and showed me the ropes, um, and some of them are well-known politicians that lived here. Uh, but in my life, I never thought that I would uh, run for office. It's funny that uh, the, the Ward 7 that you ran for is... Uh predominantly white and also has uh, not a lot of people of color within it. And additionally, it's also very, it's a very conservative ward. Um, I believe that they mm -hmm. have voted overwhelmingly on conservative issues. How did you make up for that lack of experience? And also, how did you make up for getting into an area that was a difficult area to, to break through into? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, most of the time people talk about, yes, Ward 7 is one of the most conservative in the district because, you know, during the voting records around um, school budget, for example, increasing it or decreasing it, they always vote no, you know. Um, but over the past couple of years too, let's say five, six, seven years, Ward 7 has been changing and maybe people haven't been paying very much attention but no one wanted to step up to, 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 to serve, to represent that change. And when we talk about that change, it's not about the, the skin color, but this is just that, you know, young people are moving in with their families. When we talk about city council, yes, I represent Ward 7, but I represent more Burlington. I represent more the diversity that's been here since the 80s. Um, yeah, and I think that I am doing an amazing job and I just find out through, um, because I'm running again in March 6th, I'll be running for re-election. You know, the special election I won, it was just for six months. But I started already to door knock after work at six o'clock or during weekends. Every door that I knock again, even people who didn't vote for me, you know, would say, we really appreciate your hard work at the council. 
you know, thank you so much for what you do. And I think people have been appreciating that because I speak up. And when I speak up, I'm not scared of speaking up uh, for this establishment. And also what I think, you know, I will definitely make sure that it come across to the, the other people, member of the council. So you're a black man, you're a Muslim, and you're also not a Native American. Was that difficult to to have those kind of conversations with uh, strangers and uh, predominantly white, older Americans? I mean, no. I mean, I was very comfortable. Maybe it's because, uh, you know, I've been interacting with white people. You know, I attended a private Catholic school. I know even prayers in, in, in even though I'm Muslim, I know prayers in, in Christianity. You know, in French, uh, my wife is white, so I have part of my family, you know, they they all white. Um, all of that basically been just preparing me to be comfortable. I'm comfortable. I am not, I don't see my skin color as a curse or uh, something that can put me down. I mean, I am very comfortable in my in my skin. And I can talk to every single person. As much as we understand each other, we respect each other, we can have any type of discussion and I can bring what I think. I can let you know what you think and I also respect people's perspective, people's idea. You know, as a Muslim, for example, that never came up. No one ever asked me, okay, what's your religion? You know, but they mostly ask me, what are your qualifications to represent me? Mm. And I always tell them, I've been involved in this community. I was, I am still a board member at CBO, Right for Democracy. I created Africa Jamano. I created Parent University. You know, when people hear all of those accomplishments that you have done during only 10 years, they impress because they will know you a leader and you will be working hard to represent them, you know, to represent their interests. You know, that's what people wanted to hear. And also people will look you up, people will ask their neighbors. And the luckiest um, aspect of my run also was, since I've been here, I only worked in the Burlington School District. So I know the children, I shared my artistic skills, I shared my, my religion, I shared my story you know, with so many children and their families. You know, they inspired me, I learned from them, and I've been making connections with people, even not knowing that will, this will serve me one day. I was just doing it because I was, I liked it. I like to tell my story. I like to be part of this community. I am a mover and a shaker and I have always been like that. And people know that. It's not, they're not electing you because you have a beautiful smile. You know, they elect you because you are electable because you have a track record of getting things done, of bringing new perspective, of innovating. You know, people know that since I've been here, I never applied for, you know, food stamp or, you know, uh, childcare subsidy or anything. I just worked hard for myself, support myself. And I've been also supporting all the people in this community that the system cannot help. You know, and sometimes the world, the, the words go around. You know, you don't think people know you, but they know many things about you 
that you don't know they know about you. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is um, so and true. I think all of that been 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 helping me. I mean, we are a small community too. We we all connected and we are all in this together. Now politically I see that I'm not gonna stop here. Maybe in a couple of years I'll be you know, putting myself forward for another race. You know, I love people and I love to represent them and I wanna be part of the change in this Green Mountain state. That's great to hear because I was going to ask you what the future holds for, for Ali Jang. So um, I think uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing that you're actually planning to go beyond the, the role that you have today. So um, a couple more questions here, but uh, the, I wanted to find out, you know, I know that your life goes beyond uh, your political life. Um, ever since you came to Vermont, you've worked for the Burlington School District, but you've also established like an after school program. Uh, the bicycle bookmobile, mm-hmm. um, as well as a uh, yeah. drumming group, a soccer tournament for mm-hmm. new Americans. You're mm-hmm. on the board for the Champlain Valley Office of Economic Opportunity and uh, Rights and Democracy, as well as uh, starting Parent University. Could you just kind of rattle off a little bit um, about what all, what all these things are about and how they are helping you yeah. to reach more people? Yeah. Um, so I think, I was created in 2010 and you know I used to play drum in Africa and when I came here I connected with a couple of African people from Ghana from Senegal uh, from Guinea you know and together with two Senegalese friends I mean in 2010 we created Africa Jamana one is a dancer and the other one is a drummer you know we never knew each other in the past we met here um, so we created that band then to raise awareness of West African culture through music, through dance, um, through cultural art displays, etc. And one of our band members actually, you know, got a chance to work with Anjali Kijo. His name is Joho Jan. He went wow. to New York and he, I mean, yeah, and he's still, you know, touring around the world. Our parent university was... Uh, an educational program of parents of students in the Burlington School District. I worked for Burlington Parks and Recreation to direct a summer recreation and nutrition program. You know, kids would come to the school with no clothes sometimes, with no shoes. It, it's summer, you know. And when you ask them, hey, go home, get your shirt on, you know, there is a bandage, you know, you have bruises, put a bandage, where's your mom? They would tell me, mom is not home. You'll see uh, eight years taking care of a six-month child. When you ask, where's your mom? Mom went to work. Where's dad? We don't know. Those type of things. And that's, I'm like, yeah. New refugees and immigrants, they need opportunities to learn about rules and regulation, raising children in Vermont. So that's how I developed a proposal uh, presented to, um, you know, a couple of my bosses back then. It took me two years to get it approved and piloted. So we piloted it in 2014, and now the program is growing. I mean, basically it works in collaboration with many different community organizations that come in the school and teach parents, families, valuable life skills that can help not only them, but also help the family at large. Then the goal is to equip the parents with knowledge and skills um, necessary that will help them to be the first teachers 
in their children's education. You know, um, we started only with four different organizations, and now we have over 20 community agencies that partner with us to deliver those classes to parents. Basically, Monday to Friday, every single day, you know, from 3.30 to 5, and the classes are currently taking place at the Integrated Arts Academy. So, Rights for Democracy, I am one of the founding mother of that organization, which is to help not only bring policy ideas at the state level, at local municipalities, uh, but also to look into education funding for uh, Burlington and also New Hampshire. So that uh, organization was started here in Vermont, and now it's growing uh, to New Hampshire. And we have two different boards, Board C, C4, and also Board C3. So I'm in the Board C3 looking into education and just glad that the great work that they're doing in not only bringing policy ideas, but also to uh, uh, find, recruit young people, people who are gay, lesbian, the most vulnerable, to be part of the uh, political culture of Burlington and Vermont in general. Um, And for, uh, let's say, CVOO, uh, basically, when I created Parents University, CVOO was one of our partners to teach financial literacy. Um, So we had a great working relationship. They were impressed by the model of Parents University and when they uh, was looking for new board members, um, they reached out and asked me if I wanted to be a board member. And yes, I accepted it and been there for, let's say, two years now and used to be in the uh, Vermont um, Policy Council for Head Start to look into um, you know, early childhood education in the state you know, and also in collaboration with the federal government. Um, so, Ali, in closing, um, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? I think, um, yeah, I, what I would say is basically your education, don't take it lightly. Read a lot of books. Learn a lot of stories. Anything that you do, make sure that the impact that it will have for you, make sure that same impact will touch people in your family, people in your community. Never stop seeking to be better. Yeah. Mm, that's great. That's great words yeah. of wisdom there. Yeah. Would you like to share how uh, my audience can learn more about you and the stuff that you're involved in? Yeah. So, um, you know, my website is www.alijeng.com and my Twitter handle is jengali. And my website basically, yeah, has my contact email and all of that. All right. And that is A-L-I-D-I-E-N-G. And I will add that into the show notes uh, for the for the listeners. 
Well, Ali, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and for sharing with me and my listeners about the life that you're living. Um, it is quite clear to mm-hmm. see that you are a passionate and dedicated uh, community leader. Even though non, non-white residents make up about 10% of Burlingtonians, uh, they do account for almost 50% of the population growth. And so we need more people like you to take on the responsibility of uh, representing the needs of this growing segment of the population and uh, help dispel the myth that immigrants are just here to feed off the resources of this blessed nation. So thank you so much for everything that you are doing and uh, really do appreciate um, the hard work you're putting in uh, for, for the people of Burlington. Oh, thank you so much. This is, was a great privilege for me um, to share uh, my story and what I do. And I think it is important also for your initiative to be recognized because what you're doing, I mean, I think many people should do the same uh, because there's so many stories are there that are not told. And I think what you're doing is incredible. Thank you so much. Wonderful. And with that, we will wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast On the Shoulders of Giants, I talk to Rebecca Roos and Timna Dalma, two mothers of two transgender children, about the realities, the joys, the hopes and dreams of raising transgender children. Because when you think about what you're having, you know, like just all of your dreams and thoughts that your child growing up is really rooted in their, their gender. So you kind of think, okay, so, you know, we're, we're having, we're going to, we have this girl, um, I'm going to get to, you know, brush her hair, we're going to be able to dress her in adorable things, and one day she will get married, and, you know, my husband and I um, do wedding photography, so every time at the, you know, father-daughter dance, my husband gets a little teary-eyed thinking, okay, this is our future, I can see myself in this picture. Um but, you know, surprise, um, <laughs> um, kids tend to be their own people. Um, and that is, was such a surprise to me because you think that you can shape and mold people and you can to a certain extent. But, you know, you think about your relationship with your own parents and that how different you are from your siblings or your parents. And that really took me a while to kind of grasp that, yeah, my kids are their own people, no matter how I try and influence them. And it's something that that we asked ourselves and that our families, you know, our extended family asked us too. like, well, maybe maybe this is just a phase because kids, when they're growing up, you know, they're always testing. They're testing themselves in so many different ways. You know, Mm -hmm. you got to test yourself to learn how to crawl and to walk and to talk and then to experiment with, you know, playing sports and playing instruments and dancing and to push the boundaries of, well, what can I get away with in my house? And really living the experience, we realized that, no, it just it wasn't. We could tell that every time Perrin did something that was more what we would consider feminine or female, the more she glowed, the more her eyes sparkled, the more bubbly she was, and we just saw that grow and grow every time that she expressed herself more 
and changed a little bit more to have the outside look more like the inside felt. It wasn't a phase. It wasn't just something she was trying on. It really was her growing into be the person that she really needed to be. 